Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff After Hours. This is Real Crime Stories. Like I say all the time, we have an unbelievable show tonight, but I swear I mean it this time. I mean it every time. But we do have an unbelievable show tonight. And I'll introduce myself first. I'm, I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year NYPD veteran. I worked for 16 years in the detective bureau. I was a sergeant for 22 years, and I retired out of Manhattan North Homicide Squad. Tonight, we have two extraordinary guests that not only had unbelievable careers prior to now, but they're doing amazing things now. First, I'm going to introduce you to Bob Mladenich. Don't try to spell that last name. It's pretty damn hard to spell. But Bob is a retired detective. He was 20 years and out from the 6-6 squad. He's an investigator, private, a private investigator. He also is an author. He's written four books. He's an expert on the case we're going to speak about tonight, Joel Rifkin. In fact, he went to the same high school as Joel Rifkin on Long Island, East Meadow High School. And I, I, you know, I, I went to the same college as Joel Rifkin. I uh, went to Nassau Community, and I didn't become a serial killer. I don't know if, uh, if that college had anything to do with it. Anyway, Bob is also an actor, and he opens up the, the scene of The Irishman. And I didn't pull up any pictures because I don't want them to give me a copyright strike on this podcast. But Bob is a jack of all trades, and now he's going to be, uh, I believe, an MSW, a master of social work. He's going to be a therapist, correct, Bob? Well, I already am. I'm licensed now in Connecticut and New York, and I will be hanging a shingle uh, very shortly. Wow. So if you need any help, any marital problems, I'm the man to come to. I got mad PSD, but I won't go to you because okay. you won't understand me. Anyway, our other guest is the amazing, amazing, and I don't say this lightly, Barbara Butcher who is a retired chief of staff from the New York City Office of the Chief Medical Examiner. I mean, she also happens to be an actress. She's an author. She's writing a book right now, and she's one hell of a funny lady, too. I think she could have been a great stand-up comic if she put her mind to that, but she could do anything that she put her mind to. But she is an expert on uh, you know, pathology, and she was a medical legal investigator. A few folks that don't know what that is, those are the people that come in the Tyvek suits to the homicide scene. Although back in the day, Barbara wore, you know, fishnet stockings and high heels because she thought this was a TV show. She didn't know it was the real thing. But anyway, they do the uh, death examination at the scene, among other things. And they speak to the investigators. Anyway, what a perfect team here. Tonight, we're going to cover the case of Long Island's, probably New York State's, maybe one of the United States' most prolific serial killers. Joel Rifkin. And uh, Bob Mladenich, in fact, he wrote a book. Uh, this is the book on the screen, From the Mouth of the Monster. And he wrote a, uh, he covered, he interviewed Joel Rifkin. And I, I believe they were actually friends in, in growing up in East Meadow, Long Island. Without further ado, Bob Mladenich. Yeah, thanks, uh, Bill. Uh, and just a, a minor correction. Um, I did grow up in Long Island in Huntington, New York. Uh, but I went to college with Joel at the State University um, at Brockport. Wow. And we, that, that was after he left Farmingdale, where you would have been, might have been schoolmates with him. Oh, but no, then he, he came to, went to Nassau. Nassau community. He did. He went there for two years, yeah. and then he transferred up to, um, to Brockport. And I met him in the journalism department. Wow. And um, we were both journalism students, and I had gotten my very first paid assignment in 1979 to cover a, um, 
a boxing match in, in Rochester, New York. And I desperately needed a photographer. I had told the, the person that hired me that I could take photos as well as I could write, which was a total um, uh, mis fabrication. Uh, misrepresentation. Fabrication. Let's face it. Yes, it was. I just wanted the job. I wanted the $50 job so bad just to have my name and my byline on something. So I went to the uh, journalism department and I knew everybody there because I'd been there for three years already. And I asked if they could recommend somebody from their, their very well, their photography department had a great reputation. And they introduced me to Joel, who was like their wonder boy of the photography club. And oh, that was how we met. Serial killer to be your photographer for yeah. the boxing match. And, um, you know, it, it, what, what made that particularly newsworthy, though, Bill, was there was a riot at the arena that night. The uh, local favorite wound up winning a fight that he deserved to lose. And much to our surprise, the crowd, the pro-Rocky Fratto crowd went nuts. There was a terrible riot. The police came. And Joel and I found ourselves on our very first paid assignment, the extra excitement of going into Rochester and trying to peddle the photographs to the two daily newspapers up there. So it was a really exciting, formative experience for the both of us. And when did, I mean, so all of these things, what year was this anyway? What this was in October 1979. So this is 10 or 11, about 10 years before he became a serial killer. Yeah, he became, a, he, I think he killed his first victim in 1988. And what did he do between? He never graduated college, right? No, he didn't graduate. He dropped out. The you know he never came back for the following semester, and I was a little disappointed because um, I was very impressed with his photographic ability, and he was a he was kind of an awkward and you know geeky, but a lot of people at that age are, especially in college. But I just I really thought that he had tremendous talent, and when I when I heard that he dropped out. I kind of had this, you know, this fantasy that he was out there shooting for National Geographic magazine or something or Life magazine. <laughs> he was really that good. He was, um, and, and he was very brave because there was, a, it was a really uh, violent riot. There were chairs flying through the air, bottles, projectiles, and he was up there with his camera up in the air firing away, and he really got some tremendous photos. And showed, you know, courage under fire. He was one hell of a brave serial killer even back then, you know. Well, I don't think he was brave at all because he actually, no, he actually admitted to me in one of my five or six interviews with him that he preyed on the weakest and the frailest. So he, he, was, he admitted that, which I found kind of surprising. Right. Barbara, I want to ask you. Now, I, I, I'm sure you know a bit about Joel Rifkin's background. It's the classic case of the bullied nerd, you know. Right. But not all bullied nerds become serial killers. Would you uh, maybe comment upon that, Barbara? Yeah, um, and thank God they don't because there's an enormous amount of bullying that goes along with childhood, and it's, it's really pretty awful. Um, from what I read about Joel Rifkin, he had a pretty rough time. He had a dyslexia, undiagnosed, and um, he was socially awkward and physically awkward. And there was some story about him um, that he, he, oh, he thought maybe his way to a social life was to join the track team. 
And so he tried to run track and uh, it didn't work out too good. And that made him even a bigger target. Now he was a loser too. Um, so, but the anger that builds up in a, in a teenager and a kid has to find some expression. And it, if, the, if it's buried and it's held in, it turns to depression and drug addiction, et cetera. But he, um, he held that anger and he held that hurt and then he found a good way to release it. And that was against weak, helpless girls, uh, young women who, um, you know, ostensibly had very few people caring about them. So, you know, if you go after, if you target sex workers, no one's going to come chasing after you. Right. He was also um, an adopted kid. Yeah. So he was adopted by, I believe, a Jewish couple who supposedly his dad was like a brilliant uh, uh, mathematical guy, like an architect or something. And he was, his dad was also supposedly an excellent athlete. And he was so disappointed yeah. that Joel couldn't catch a baseball, couldn't do a thing. And uh, he felt right. like a loser from in his father's <clears throat> eyes, correct? Yeah, Joel said that his father really tried to be patient with him and went out of his way to teach him how to catch a ball, but the ball used to bounce off his chest. And he would sit down with him and 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 go over mathematical problems, and Joel just couldn't get them. And eventually, his father would just get exasperated. Um, and that was a great source of um, angst for Joel growing up. He felt like a tremendous disappointment in his father's eyes. And later on in life, when Joel was floundering and he was in his 20s and his father uh, developed can very advanced prostate cancer that had metastasized throughout his body, his father uh, told him he was going to give him one last chance uh, to make something of himself. And he was going to pay for two college courses at Nassau Community. And uh, he said they had to be hard courses. They couldn't be easy courses. So Joel took biology and he took one other course that was equally challenging, and he got A's on both of them. And he was he was eager to report to his father in the hospital that he got two A's. And when he got to the hospital, he found out that his father had purposely overdosed on some medication. And Joel felt, and this was they did not put this in a recent TV show um, that I the TV interview that I did that I thought, but I thought it was really important. And I was surprised they didn't add this in, but it said that um, Joel said that he felt he believed in his heart, even to this day, that his father couldn't afford um, to have another uh, Joel failure. And that's why he took himself out before he found out that he probably got two D's or two F's. That's a and little bit for, for taking a course, though, right? I'm sorry? That's a little severe of a reaction that someone would have if you failed a course, you know. But Joel said that he was, you know, his whole 28 years up until that point, he was such a constant source of disappointment to his father. Um, not so much of his, his mother, but especially his father, and that he caused his father so much pain and disappointment. And as a result, Joel felt such an like such an immense failure that um, – I, I think that might have put him over the that might have put him over the edge, yeah. Because he killed his first person shortly after that. 
Barbara, yeah. does that sound familiar to any other serial killers that you may have like look at them personality-wise uh, as failures? I mean, you know, you talk about organized and disorganized offenders. He had the, the characteristics of both, really. You know. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, that's a good point. Um, you know, what I notice about Joel Rifkin in comparison to other some of the other serial killers like John Wayne Gacy or Ted Bundy that he was um, he was different than either one of them in that like Ted Bundy, for instance, was a very charismatic person. John Wayne Gacy was a very uh, self-actualized, powerful person. He felt confident and sure and all kinds of things. And Joel Rifkin was was very much not like it. Like he had none of those characteristics. He seemed like kind of a nerd. And and I wonder, Bob, in, in college, did he ever date a girl or try to date a girl or have a he had a he had a girlfriend in college who I met very briefly once. Um, but he later told me that by the time he was in college, he had this secret sex life that had begun even before he went away to school. So it happened, he started getting sexual experiences with prostitutes on Long Island before he went away to 400 miles away to school. And he had developed such an affinity for that type of sex, you know, just paying for it and pretty much having it his way very quickly and expeditiously. And that was the kind of sex he had even in his relationship with this with this young girl. So he felt, he didn't realize this then when he was 20 years old, but he realized later that it really wasn't much of a, of a depthful relationship because he was kind of looking at her just as a, as another um, prostitute without even realizing it emotionally well, he, and physically. Well, Bob, did he maybe uh, target prostitutes in regards to sex because he just didn't want to have any intimate connection with them other than the sex? I mean, on an intellectual way, you know? Well, one thing that he said that, that made sense, and I, I've read this with other serial killers, um, he didn't feel that he was killing a human being. He felt like what he was attacking was a profession. He was a, attacking the prostitution profession. And in the beginning, he said he kind of hoped after the first one, after the first murder, rather than exhilaration, he was kind of hoping that the fear and the paranoia that he felt after the first one might take away the desire to actually continue you know, living a life where all he was was obsessed with being with prostitutes. But unfortunately, that didn't work. And one other, one other thing that he said that I found very profound was when he depersonalized these women, he said he, he liked to make wartime analogies and also sporting analogies. <clears throat> and the wartime analogy that I found particularly interesting was it wasn't like I was killing a person or a woman or even a prostitute. You know, by the fact that I was killing a prostitute, it was like in wartime shooting down a plane or sinking a ship. You know, you're shooting an object. You're not killing people that are in that ship or on that plane. And that was how he viewed each of these individuals that he killed, that oh, he was yeah. killing a profession. 
Yeah, he needed to dehumanize <laughs> them in order to be able to uh, to kill them. Barbara, yeah. you want to touch upon that? Well, you know what I'm wondering, um, was he, from what I've read, it didn't seem like he was particularly sadistic with them. He didn't prolong their deaths. Uh, no, he, he definitely didn't do that. He blunted them with, you know, objects, and then if they weren't dead from that, he'd strangle them. So I, I, it, he didn't have that sadistic quality like the Golden State guy who right. just to make them suffer and, you know, prolong it. Uh just and feel their terror, which to me is the scariest kind of serial killer is that sadistic type. Um, but it seemed like Rifkin, when he was done, he was disposing of them right. as objects. I'm done with this now. I'll kill it. He'd bludgeon them and that's the end of it. But no, he even talked a little ritualistically about cutting them up. Um, he even dis discussed uh, cutting them up with an exacto knife. And I expect I express some cred, you know, incredulousness. I said, "You can kill somebody with you can dissect somebody with an exacto knife." And he said, "Absolutely. You just cut around the the tendons or the ligaments, and you pop the bones out." Um, but he seemed to enjoy that as part of the sort of almost like a logistical chore. I didn't get the impression he really relished uh, in doing it, but he seemed to. Um, pride himself on, you know, kind of being a job well done. Like he, he knew how to finish the job, bring the job to completion. Yeah. Let's talk about, you know, where, I mean, it seemed like most of his prostitute victims he picked up in New York city and then brought him, brought them back to his home in East Meadow, Long Island. Usually his mother and his sister would be away and he'd kill them down in his basement and then he would dump them back in New York City, which it's not all of them, but most of them. And well, that, fact, one, that wasn't really most of them, Bill. It was all, that was only about three or four of the 17. But most of them he killed in his car. Oh, most of them he killed was not in the basement. Yeah, he, the ones he brought home to Long Island, he killed them in the living room or in a bedroom and then took them in the basement and dissected them. Oh, okay. And then, uh, you know, uh, and curiously, he would drive to New York City and dump the bodies and uh, body parts in different places. I think Joel kind of viewed the city as this wild, um, this wild place where, you know, back then you, you really, it was a wild place, as we know. And it was also a place where you could pretty much get away with anything. And I fig I think he, he figured if I just dump them in different parts of the of New York City, nobody's ever going to make the connection that this leg belongs to this arm or this torso. And as we know, crime was so rampant in the 1980s and the early 1990s, and there was really no connection between precincts and boroughs. Um, and it was easy to get away with. There were no cameras all over the place. It was very easy to get uh, to get away with things. Well, I think. Oh, I'm sorry, Barbara. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Bill. I was just going to say that's when I first came on the job, early 90s, when we were getting 2,400 homicides a year. Now, if you get 350, it's it's uh, the alarm bells go off. We had 2,420 something a year then. And um, I remember just I could get a, a sex worker killing three or four times a week. And it was no particular cause for alarm. Um, we'd find girls over by, uh, behind the bus, uh, terminal on 40, 
in the 40s, West 40s, 42nd, yeah. track yards, just, just girls killed and left there. And it seemed to be kind of routine. And then in the hot sheet motels, like the one up, uh, what do they call it, the park up in uh, Harlem right. on 110th, um, they just killed the girls and leave them there. So it wasn't cause for alarm at the time. And it's easy to see how he could just do this with impunity. Well, you and know, Bob, Barbara, as far as also um, connecting cases together, I don't think New York City had the first DNA hit until 1997. It was Aaron Key, the serial killer. Right. That's so right. My people listening now may think, oh, why didn't they just you know, put all of these things together with DNA, which is also the problem with the Gilgo, you knew I was going to mention the Gilgo Beach murders yeah. because they were dumped like 10 years after they actually, or they found them 10 years after they were actually were murdered. And there, there was no DNA recovered right. from any of them that we know, that the general public knows. Right. It seems like they keep teasing us, putting out little other tidbits of evidence that they should have put out years ago that I don't know why they were holding some of it, like that belt they put out uh, recently that said, oh, this is the perpetrator's belt. I don't know how they know that. But, um, you know, so we got to realize when we're talking about linkage, case linkage, there was no DNA in, in 1991 when he first started, or 88, 89, when he first started his killing spree. And there was no communication between, there was no uh, uh, real-time crime center. There were no linkages between precincts. I mean, I remember if somebody went missing, in uh, Manhattan, but they lived in Brooklyn. They had to go report it, and the family had to report it in Brooklyn. But then nobody told the folks in Manhattan. Right. And we right. have a dead body that matched the Brooklyn guy, but nobody knew it. And it took you know, years. Isn't that, isn't that so amazing? And we think about something now for the folks listening. Uh, I forget exactly what year it was, but uh, a complaint follow-up that's done by a detective Anyone that says anything to a detective, he has to type a complaint follow-up, which is referred to as a DD-5 in police lingo. Now, these DD-5s used to be in six carbons, and the PAA would rip them and send them, to, which was so ridiculous, to the different locations. Now we actually went to computers, because the NYPD mm -hmm. had been hitting two rocks together to make a spark for years, right? I think we were the last ones to get these computers. Now the DD5 system was all integrated. So if a detective in the 7-9 was looking for a guy named, I, I don't want to use the name Pito because it's so common, right? But <laughs> say he was looking for Pito and you were, whoa, look, he's looking for this. It's the same guy. And that's how you would find that out. Voila, what you were talking about before, Barbara. No one talked to each other. And now you can actually even search the DD5 system and mm -hmm. find you know, different information. Yeah, now it's hard to get away with anything. Right. Uh, they've got your picture on, on video, committing the crime, walking to it and walking home. So they get everything, the work, the commute, the whole business. Um, but Joel Rifkin was probably in the last period when you could get away with absolutely anything. Um, as long as you didn't kill um, a, a well-to-do white woman on Park Avenue. Right. You know, it was just, it was just the times. The police department was overwhelmed. Uh, the whole criminal justice system was overwhelmed and things fell by the wayside. So Barbara, back then, when they found remains, 
what was the job? What what did the office of the chief medical examiner? What did they do to link stuff together? Then, you know, the identification back then, if you didn't have fingerprints, and um, if you had, you know, we we do a dental examination and look for evidence of dental work. But if you didn't have an idea of who that person could be, of of uh, a dentist's records that you could compare to, there's no ID. Um, and we didn't use, routinely use forensic anthropologists then. Like now, there's a whole team of them. They can tell you age, race, uh, diet, um, even from, from just a bare skeleton. They can get an enormous amount of information now about a person. And the IDs made on the Gilgo Beach victims um, were largely made because of the work of the New York City um, Medical Examiner's Office forensic anthropology team. They went out to Suffolk and Nassau and helped out there. Um, but, you know, without DNA, uh, it was it was mighty hard. And that's, you'll notice the very first victim, um, he called her Susie. That was uh, around 88, 89. Yes. Uh, and so her remains were found scattered in the golf course and uh, her legs were found somewhere else. She wasn't identified for 24 years, 24 wow. years. And she turned out to be a woman named Heidi Balch, 25 year old girl. Um, and she was identified in uh, after 24 years. And a lot of that is due to the NamUs system. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an online system where you can enter information about a loved one who's missing or a friend. And then medical examiner's offices, they enter their information on all the unclaimed and unidentified bodies. And then police departments put their info in. If you get a match, beautiful. Right. You know, I don't want to get off topic and we'll get right back to Joel, but someone put in the chat that some skeletal remains were just found by a fisherman in Mastic Beach on Sunday. That's right. Again, you know, that's all the amateur investigators on right. uh, YouTube that are all on that, uh, what's it called? Uh, LISK, L-I-S-K, the Long Island serial killer. And then you got that very colorful attorney with the bow tie who's, you know, he, he's doing his own investigation too. But right away, of course, everyone's saying, this is another Gilgo Beach murder, you know, and I don't know what the sexes of the skeletal <clears throat> remains are yet. I don't think they've released that yet, just that they found skeletal remains. So even when we get back to uh, Joel Rifkin, is there any possibility whatsoever that he could have been the Gilgo Beach killer? I think it's been determined. Uh, he was looked at for that, as far as I know, unless there's something that the authorities are not releasing. But I think that most of the women um, in the Gilgo Beach murders were last seen, you know, alive long after Joel was in prison. So I don't think he's responsible for any of them. Um, but just one thing as a quick aside, there were, at the time of his arrest, there were about five victims that became known, they, they, but they had never been reported missing. And there's still three three women that have never been recovered. Um, but and he's told them 
one of them I think he put in a fifty. He said he put in a fifty-gallon drum, and it probably rolled, you know, out into the sea. But um, the fact that so many of these women were so marginalized that their families didn't even report them missing, you know, that obviously added a very tough dimension to the investigation as well. Yeah. No, hundred percent. I mean. Uh... You know, most, I mean, obviously, most prostitutes have a, a, if they're on the street, they have a drug problem, right? 90% of the time. And most of them are, are estranged from their families, you know. In the Gilgo Beach thing, a lot of them were uh, Craigslist escorts, which is maybe one level higher of sex worker than the street worker. But I don't, I don't want to be killed for saying that. People will be like, oh, my God, you're blaming it on the sex. I'm not. I'm just saying mm -hmm. the reality of, of you know of, of what of the sex profession, and that's the reality of it. Yeah, um, and there was an effort by um, Coyote, the uh, sort of a union for uh, sex workers, uh, some years ago, maybe in the late '70s, and there was an effort to do more to identify each other and to. But but a lot of the girls were using uh, street names and and you know adopted names, um, so no one ever knew who they were originally. Never knew their real names. That's right. You, you tried to run the name Peaches in the New York City uh, crime databases, and the the computer would explode. You know. Yeah. <laughs> peaches. It's ten thousand in New York City. You know. I have to just go to a quick commercial, guys, and we'll be sure we'll be back. Um, Something has to pay the bills here. Of course. All right, uh, Carol Waters. Uh, if you're looking to relocate in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Carol Waters of the Beach Realty Group has been buying and selling property in the Myrtle Beach area for 11 years now. Carol and her husband, Rob Mayen, retired FDNY firefighter, also a rollover from the NYPD. They work as a team. Carol's been a multi-million dollar producer for the past 10 years. They have great knowledge of all aspects of the real estate industry. Carol's well-known around the Irish community in New York. She worked in Fitzpatrick's Manhattan Hotel for over 20 years behind the stick. Originally born in the Bronx and brought up in County Mayo, Ireland, contact Carol Waters for all your real estate needs in the Myrtle Beach area. Carol Waters, spell Myrtle Beach at gmail.com, 914-261-6681. Thank you, folks. I hate to go to commercial. It's such an interesting show, but I have to do it. Go back. <laughs> Bob, is that your phone? Is that one of your clients in your future? Room? No, yeah, something. I didn't realize something was on, but I turned it off. Sorry. So let's talk about now. Here he is. He's a a landscaper. Uh, he's got one of the the worst trucks I think I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. Was he a working landscaper or was he working? You know, he really wasn't. He he would get a bunch of. He got a bunch of jobs, but he never could keep them. He was very irresponsible. He wouldn't show up on time. If he had a like a weekly contract to cut somebody's lawn, it would it would never last more than three or four weeks before they got rid of him. So he was never really able to maintain a job. the The only job that he had for a couple of years was a part time job in a liquor store. Um, and that where he started working as a teenager as like a stock boy. Um, but that was the only. The only real job that he, from my research, that he was able to hold on to for any amount of time. 
he was completely disheveled and disorganized in all aspects of his uh, personal life. I mean, you would think that he would be smart enough to know that driving around in a truck like that, missing a license plate <clears throat> with a dead body in the back probably wasn't a, a good idea, you know? I think he was just looking to make a quick run because the, he was repairing that truck and the body was starting to smell and he was concerned that his mother, although his mother stayed out of that shed, um, that she would still smell, you know, the remains. So he just, you know, patchworked the car together enough to probably go seven or eight miles, get rid of the body, and then come home and resume work on the on the vehicle. Wow. But, I mean, you would have to be a little bit crazy to think that that wasn't going to draw attention to you. I don't think he, th I don't think he th thought that far ahead. He was very disheveled and... Um, and disorganized, and I think once he got it into his mind that he had to get rid of that body because of the smell, that became his preoccupation. I'm going to give you one one good one uh, good example of his his OCD. Um, you probably remember John Greeny, a retired detective, passed away. Did you know him, Bill? I think I he worked past through Manhattan North, but he was working in a squad in the Bronx, and they had to bring they had to go pick up Joel in Suffolk County and bring him to uh, the Bronx to be arraigned for a murder there. And John had just bought a house, and he loved gardening and everything. So he was trying to engage Joel on the, on the way. He knew he couldn't speak with him because he, because he had a lawyer. But they were talking about gardening. And he said he found him very pleasant. So they put him in the cell in the 4-0. And, you know, he treated him well. He got him some food and everything. But he said there was a little tiny crack in the wall, in the concrete wall, in the cell. And he said he observed Joel sort of zero in on that within five minutes of getting into the cell. And then for the next seven or eight hours, he just be, was preoccupied with making it bigger and, you know, and scratching it and scraping it with his fingernail, then blowing on it, you know, blowing the dust away, then looking at it and examining his handiwork. And he said it was amazing just to watch him Total preoccupation for about two hours, about eight hours, actually. Well, I, I would think, Barbara, correct me if I'm wrong, I would say that that's a trait of a disorganized offender, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, it would feel that way. Um, there's, yeah, there's something about the inability to focus on, uh, oh, that looks like a killer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> take that. This was Barbara doing her fishnet stocking in the high heel days. Yeah. Um, you know, there's there's uh, the inability to focus um, on anything uh, worthwhile, like work or, or social life or, or people, but then to find a little tiny crack in the wall and all your focus goes in there, you know, that's a sign of, uh, of a mental disturbance, you know. hundred percent. Yeah, and, uh, 100%. yeah I mean. You know, when he described his first... Um, his first murder, and Bob, I probably described it to you, he hit the girl with a howitzer shell. Yeah, he had bought a howitzer shell at one of those military flea markets. Hmm. And uh, he said that it was, you know, you got to remember something about him. He, By that point, he'd been visiting prostitutes for over 10 years. He was with hundreds of them, um, you know, probably four or 500. And he fantasized ever since... 
he saw an Alfred Hitchcock movie where a woman got strangled with a with a tie, with a man's tie. It was a 1974 movie, Frenzy. He fantasized about killing every woman he was with. So in this case, he thought it was just going to be another part of the fantasy. But then she kept asking for more money and more drugs. And he just snapped and he grabbed the shell and he just started hitting her with the shell. Thought she was dead. And then she popped back up and engaged in a, like a fight for her life. And she actually bit him and uh, before she was finally killed. Now, who, who was the lead investigative agency in, in these murders? The state police. The state police? That's unusual, yeah. isn't it? Well, they had arrested him. They were the ones that the, the state police were the ones that arrested him. And then they assumed they assumed they they got the initial confession out of him. And then they assumed the rest of the pretty much the rest of the investigation. So they were the lead uh the lead investigative agency, but how about other precincts, say in New York City or even Long Island that have cases that have bodies? They're not gonna give them to the state police. No, 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 but they all got called in at various times. And Joe was a red, a red uh, eventually, like arraigned in Queens, Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Nassau County on, on different murders. I mean, and that's, probably, County too. That probably, that's probably one of the things that makes it so difficult in the Gilgo case, too, is there's so many different hands in it. I know a couple of the cases were in Nassau County, right? But most of the cases that were in Suffolk, correct, Barbara? Yep. And, you know, um, that reminds me, one of the of the victims, uh, Lauren Marquez, she was found in uh, 93 in the Pine Barrens. Right. In, on Long Island. And um, if I recall correctly, of the Gilgo cases, one a piece of a remain was found in the Pine Barrens that related back to a body at Gilgo. Um, that that sounds familiar, yeah. yeah. Wasn't the, yeah. the guy Bitroff who was arrested, didn't he kill two prostitutes and dump them in the Pine Barrens? Yeah, and Bitroff is from Manorville, mm -hmm. which is the next town over from Mastic. So it's possible that Bitroff could be responsible for that Mastic case, assuming it's even a woman and it's and it's the victim of a serial killer. Yeah, yeah. The Manor Manorville definitely relates to Gilgo because there were, there, I think there was a head found in Manorville that came from a body in Gilgo. And right, that's the, right. Yep, you're right. Yeah, and then the Pine Barrens. There was some other relation between two, you know, between re the remains found in each place. There was um, the there was the um, burlap bags that some of the Gilgo victims were wrapped in, and the biggest supplier of burlap bags was from Manor Haven. Right, 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 yeah. And committed suicide after. So mm. the, the plot thickens, you know. I'm not saying that, you know, it was possibility could have had something to do with it, but I, I don't know enough about. And do you remember how that guy Bitroff was captured? No. You know, he wasn't, he wasn't even a suspect. And um, he was kind of unknown to the police. Yeah, he might have had a couple of drunken driving arrests, maybe a bar fight or something. But they got DNA from one of the victims, 
and it was matched to his brother who had put in one of those Ancestry.com type things. And, and they knew it wasn't the brother, but they could tell it was the relative of this person. So that's how specific this DNA evidence is nowadays. So yeah. anybody, anybody that's put in one of those ancestry things that did something 30, 40 years ago really should be sweaty nowadays. Yeah, my brothers and sisters are all sweating now that I put mine in. <laughs> <laughs> Especially but, with uh, that last name, Butcher. You know, you, you can't live that right. down, you know? Change it to Boucher. <laughs> That's right. And, and you were from Massapequa, too, right? That's right. And actually, I lived in East Meadow. Not uh -oh. Joel Rifkin, and I went. And yeah, that was my first apartment. I was like 18, 19 years old. And then I went to Nassau Community briefly, too. But, wow, um, look at all the superstars that went to Nassau Community. <laughs> Myself, Barbara Butcher, Joel Rifkin. Oh, my God. But we, none of us became serial killers, though, right? <laughs> no, but we got close enough to it, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> I was a product of the state system, Nassau, Buffalo State College, and CUNY, uh, John Jay, you know? Yeah. A-A-B-A-M-S and B-M-F. I won't tell you what a B-M-F is, but. <laughs> and you know, I think you're from Long Island also, right? Uh, I grew well, up in Lovetown, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Long Island is well represented on this show tonight. That's right. That's right. Um, Bob, I wanted to ask you something too about. I'm sorry, Bill. I'm, I'm like, oh, Bob, go ahead. But look, everyone's free to talk on this show. There's, there's no yeah. stars on this show except me. No. Just <laughs> <laughs> um, Bob, when 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 Rifkin described all his his uh, killings to the police, to the state police and others, um, and he described where he put the remains and things like that. Did he take any pride in that? Any um, uh, pride of ownership, if you will? Or did I he think, I'm sorry, but Barbara, finish your uh, question. Or did he just sort of lay it out like, well, this happened, that happened? Or did he take some pride in, in how he hid the girls and how he, did, he got away with it for so long? Uh, some of the investigators that I've seen interviewed have interpreted um, his actions and his his affect as taking pride. I, I know the Nassau County prosecutor, Fred Klein, felt as if he had taken pride in the fact that this was, you know, the, the one thing in life that he did well. But with in my interviews with him, you know, on a strictly personal level and how he related to me, um, it didn't seem as if he had, uh, he took any pride. He didn't seem, he, he actually seemed kind of emotionless uh, with me. Um, and one of the things, one of the reasons for that might be the fact that since he'd been uh, imprisoned, he was on some uh, medication. He didn't, uh, he didn't tell me what it was, but it was me a mood medication. Um, so maybe his effect was uh, affected by that. But yeah. um my guess is uh, that he probably would have taken a little bit of pride in the fact that he was the, uh, you know, killed more people in New York than anybody else. Because I remember when I was re uh, uh, writing to him and visiting him on a regular basis, there was going to be a special 
I think it was called the mind of a murderer and they were going to do PET scans on his brain and, and he was going to be taken to, I think Elmira hospital for three days and they were going to do all sorts of, of tests. And he wrote me a letter. This is before the internet um, or the very early days of the internet when people still wrote letters. And he wrote like a little marquee, like a movie marquee. And it said, mind of a murderer, Joel Rifkin. And he, I remember he said, this be me. Wow. You know, so obviously, obviously, I think he did take some pride in the fact that he um, he did that well. There was, um, I don't know where, where I heard someone, someone got their phone on or radio on. The phone's feeding back. I got nothing on here. Let me, let me just no. turn it. Nothing I turned, was that a little better? Yeah, I was yeah. something was feeding back. Yeah, okay. um, I had heard somewhere that he took um, a certain amount of uh, satisfaction in in thinking about the bullying he endured in high school and uh, how he was a nobody, and now he felt like, well, I showed them. Look what I, I did something. Um, yeah, that, that was mentioned by the prosecutor in Nassau County. Um, I never, I never personally saw that in, in his discussions with me, but I think it certainly would make sense and yeah. it's a viable theory. Yeah. And do you keep in touch with him now? You know, I did. I kept in touch with him for the longest time. We would, we would exchange Christmas cards and, uh, even though he was Jewish, he would always send me a Christmas card. And if there were articles I thought would interest him. I would send them to him, uh, like when when his house, his mother's house was sold when she passed away. I sent him that article, but for some reason, um, he just stopped corresponding with me. Maybe seven or eight years ago, um, I don't know why. Um, I did send him an article about this, not this interview, but an interview I did about a month ago, and um, I haven't heard back from him. So uh, I don't know. Why that is, you know, it's possible, you know, in the, the housing unit that he's in, maybe people say, you know, why, why are you communicating with this guy? He's a former cop or something, or he's taking advantage of you or something. But yeah. it just, it, it ended very abruptly. And, and I was a little disappointed about that. Yeah. And I understand he was in uh, solitary confinement for a period of, what, four years? When, he, when I first visited him in Attica, he had been in solitary confinement for five years, and he sued to get out of there. He wanted to go to Clinton Correctional Facility because they have a special housing unit that's specifically um, made for sex offenders and very high-profile uh, inmates. So it's like a separate building behind the main building, and that's where he's been ever since he went to Clinton. And he is very happy there. He has a um, a garden, you know. He has he gets to tend to a garden, and he says that um, he told me I belong in prison. I should never get out of prison, and I'm actually much more functional than I ever was out in the world uh, here. But that also could be a lot of the medication talking, also. Yeah. You know, the medication might be having a very uh, positive effect on him. Does yeah. he get continued uh, psychological analysis, psychological care? 
No, I, he doesn't. He's just um, on medication management. Um, he doesn't get any psychological care whatsoever. Um, and he seems very content. I mean, that doesn't seem. He says he's very content. You know, one thing just about uh, serial killers, period, uh, it's much, much tougher now to become a serial killer because they're going to get caught much earlier in their career. You know, things like Barbie mentioned, video is everywhere. Right? Yep. That has made the life of a homicide investigator so, so much easier. License plate readers, you know, cameras at toll booths, easy pass, um, you know, we, we mentioned the DD5 system, people talking to each other. And, of course, the number one uh, scientific breakthrough of the 21st century in criminology, DNA. You know, so, you know, it's so, so much hard, harder, thank God, for someone to become a serial killer. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, back in 1990, 1990 or 91, when... DNA was just a phrase we heard about, but we really didn't know anything about. I had a homicide in the 6-6 where a glove was left behind. There were two, two perps, and one glove was left behind. The store owner was killed. We wound up catching the guy who wasn't wearing the glove, and he gave up the guy that was wearing the glove. So that's how we caught the guy with the glove. But obviously, we didn't want to tell the guy that his friend gave him up because we wanted to get a, a separate confession. So he said, well, how did you catch me? And I was thinking of telling him, well, the glove, you know, DNA. But I said, he's never going to fall for that. And he said to me, the glove, right? DNA. I said, yeah. And I couldn't believe, I said, I couldn't believe this guy could be so stupid. You know, DNA was in its infancy. And I yeah. thought I pulled the biggest trick of my career. It's, uh, but it's come, I mean, it's certainly come a long way since then. Well, you know, it's some of the, like Barbara mentioned, the office of the chief medical examiner made huge advances in DNA during the identification system for 9-11. You want to speak upon that, Barbara? Yeah, that's, um, you know, the greatest tragedy in this country, 9-11 had, it, it anything good came out of it, if it's possible to say that, it's that it advanced DNA technology about three generations, maybe 25, 30 years, because mm -hmm. everything we did was, was poured into getting identifications of those, those people and um, for their families. And we were working with the most minuscule amount of biological material um, it got to the point where we'd have a test tube with a, the, a, a tiny little fragment of flesh in it, and we'd get a DNA identification from that tiny piece of, of biological material. And then we'd have to go to the family and say, we got an ID. The bad mm -hmm. news is we had to use every little bit of matter that we had to get the test. And the families would bury the test tube wow. that it had been in. That's how crazy it got. The forces at play there were so great. You know, the the, the fire, the vaporization, the explosive right. forces. That's why there's still, you know, 40, nearly 40% of the people, or 38%, something like that, who haven't been identified. Just vaporization. 
But can you well, imagine? You know, Bob, I remember, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I remember Dr. Hirsch <clears throat> gave a speech. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hirsch, uh, for you folks out there, he was the chief medical examiner of New York City during 9-11. And he gave a speech at the homicide course. And he had said that the reality is that many of the bodies, like you just said, were vaporized. And yeah. although the families hate to hate to hear that, hate it's it the absolute truth. He goes, never in the history of mankind has the amount of force gone straight down into the ground with the weight of all the building and the brick and the steel and all that stuff. And that's what he said. And I remember Dr. Flowenbaum, who was the second guy in charge, right? Right. He had told us that Hirsch gave a speech to some, I don't know, 5,000 doctors or something like that. And after he'd given the speech, they gave him a standing ovation. Yeah. You know, yep. which must but, have been yeah. just an incredible thing, right? Yeah. But, you know, we learned so much from doing that identification uh, effort, which is still going on, by the way, 20 years later. We Hirsch made a promise. We will do whatever it takes for as long as mm. it takes till every person's identified. That could go on for the next 100 years. But the truth is, we, what we learned from that enabled us to do uh, DNA work on on crimes where we were doing gun swabs um, uh, just off a trigger where a gun had been held by maybe three perps. And we were able to discern the three different profiles on that DNA from one swab or steering wheels. We did that for a while on stolen vehicles, mm -hmm. but we were getting DNA off everything. And it's all because of what we learned um, during that identification effort. So didn't all work out great in terms right. of what we learned, like the low copy DNA uh, was too sensitive and you have to stop doing it because you could pick up 10 profiles on a, on a weapon. Um, it was just so incredibly sensitive that it became oversensitive. So which of those 10, perp 10 people that handled that gun was the actual perpetrator? Who knows? Right. Right. So, Got that? It got that crazy. Well, it's just like you know, uh, the defense would love to be able to impinge the credibility of DNA uh, mm -hmm. when it is in the favor of the prosecution. However, DNA has also cleared many people who weren't guilty. Mm -hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah. Right. Oh, there's so I many mean, people. Like the Innocence Project has has worked hard to get people who were um, exonerated after you know, many, many years by DNA. Yeah. People are telling me to stay on, on the topic. So I got oh. all, all rifting now. And we're getting a, a DNA lecture from uh, <laughs> the former OCME chief of staff, Barbara Butcher. I'll get back to the topic uh, <laughs> with Bob Mladenich, who is the expert on the Joel Rifkin case. Mm. And, uh, you know, it seemed that once he was arrested, though, um, the mystery behind this and, um, you know, whether he had, in fact, done a lot more murders than he was charged with. I think they he maybe admitted to 17 and they only charged him with nine. And he was mm -hmm. sentenced to 203 years in prison. I don't know. Maybe if Cuomo stays governor, he might be paroled. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, right. He'll, get out, he'll get out at that, that 55 and over law. Yeah, yeah. Older law, I qualify for the 55 and older law. Yeah. I'm getting out. 
Do you think there's any possibility of that? It's possible, absolutely. Why did they stop? Uh, why did they try him for nine? I, I think th I think that um, they, you know, they had him. He, he already had two, a two hundred year sentence, and they probably just wanted to save the expense of another trial. Um, I know that one county, I don't remember which one, but um, they um, there's some legal term where they can they reserve the the right to charge later or something if if he gets if he gets out on on some appeal or something but i think it just got so expensive trying him and he actually pled guilty he only actually he only um went on trial i believe in suffolk county and he pled guilty in a couple of cases in queens and uh nassau and suffolk he went on trial but in new york city he pled guilty to all the cases yeah what were the investigators satisfied that they had identified every case that he was involved in? Or well, no, no, there's actually, um, I got a lot of calls after this show aired from old friends. One, one friend of mine in the 3-4, there was a body up there that was um, never identified. And had he known about this earlier, you know, he would have loved to have a chance to speak to Rifkin about that body. Um and then there's some, there's a couple of uh, Brooklyn cases where the women are still unidentified. And I spoke to one of those detectives, and he said he still thinks about it on a constant basis. And he's frustrated that that one was never solved because he knows he did it. But um, you know, he'd like to know more about where she was. I was able to put in the book where he would, you know, everything I thought he remembered about where he got to pick up this woman, but it wasn't enough for them to even years later, identify who she was. But everybody kind of wants, wants a crack at him now. And I know, like, even in the past five years, detectives go up there on a regular basis. They even went up there, you know, during the Gilgo investigation just to um, ask him, you know, for intelligence purposes about what he might have, how he might have done it, you know, things like that. You know, I, I find it, that almost like going to a, a medium, you know. Yeah, exactly. The same exactly. level of credibility has no credibility whatsoever. No, but I'm sure that there was another. At least that was the outward but reason. But you know, people still go to mediums, and there's oh, never yeah. been a homicide case in the history of mankind yeah. that's been solved by a medium. But they still want to do it. Yep. Like I just don't get it. You know, you know something. I'm going to either go to a medium or Joel Rifkin. I don't know which one should I do. You know. <laughs> no, but I think that was just a ruse. You know that they used um, to maybe gather. There was some. There might have been some women that might have last been seen around the time he went to jail. So right. they thought maybe just possibly he might have had something. Well, it's it's like showbiz stuff, like with Hannibal Lecter. How would you have done it? Oh, you know. Right. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and I'm sure Joe would 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 he would probably enjoy that. I think he would enjoy that. You know, being viewed. Uh, as the expert, you know, given the, the uh, because one of the things that he told me that he was actually very proud of was he had written this like 23 page manifesto called the Aloha House. And Aloha in Hebrew means sanctuary. And the Aloha House was a 23 page um, uh, uh, manifesto about a place where women on the streets could go, they could learn parenting skills, life. You know, writing checks, taking care of 
taking care of families, taking care of themselves. And um, the words that he described um, that sent a little bit of a chill through me is it would teach them how to protect themselves by from people like me. She, you know, well, sheep's in wool, wool's clothing. Wow. And so, so he, he knows what he is, what he was. He never portrayed himself as anything different. Um, you know, although he discussed being a victim and everything as a, as a bullying victim, he never seemed to look for sympathy for what he did. You know, he admitted that he preyed on the weak and the vulnerable because he didn't want any, he didn't want to fight with them. He didn't want any um, resistance. So he was very truthful. And I, I found myself, once my, my oldest child was born, I found myself getting mad at him because, you know, the way he was talking about killing women, you know, prior to that, I viewed myself as this consummate professional because I was able to remain so impassive. But, um, but then I said, I can't be mad at this guy for, you know, I asked him to be open and honest with me. And it's not fair that now I, I want to judge him. So it was, a, but it was a little hard for me to remain impassive after my oldest uh, daughter was born. Yeah, I mean, I see him as um, he seems like a nerd and a very timid guy, but yet he comes to life to kill women, which is really sort of pathetic, you know? Like, where would, why wouldn't he be violent with another man, you know? Because he's a coward. And, and if he was walking on the street and a well dressed woman, woman bumped into him or he bumped into her and she called him a name or said, Watch where you're going. Uh, and called him a, an idiot or something, I don't think she would be in any danger. I think he was only dangerous in the dead of night with an 85-pound, you know, crack-addicted waif. I don't yeah, think yeah. I think anybody else would scare the daylights out of him, yeah. Yeah. Male, male and female. Yeah. Yeah. Go you ahead, Barbara. You want to say something? Yeah, and this is this is a little weird. I'm not even sure how to say it, but... I mean, the guy never had a chance. You know, he was he was born, he was given up, he was uh, dyslexic, he was clumsy, he was unattractive, and he was picked on constantly. He never had a chance to de to develop into a person. Um. I mean, that doesn't believe me. I'm not excusing anything here. My God, no. But he never had a chance to develop a personality or a because he didn't have relationships. Right. So the idea that he would go after weak, vulnerable people is just it fits. He he, yeah. he had no. He didn't have personality enough to to do like Ted Bundy to seduce people, or even Aaron Key, um, you know, another serial killer you you don't hear much about. But um, he raped and killed girls between 13, 15, as old as nineteen years old. But he he had a a seductive pattern that he went after them. Joel Rifkin was a loser from the get go. Right. And, and not only that, not only that, Barbara and Bill, but from the time he was a little kid in second, second and third grade, he was scheming. And when I say scheming, he was scheming for his own survival. He was scheming how to stay in school 
helping the teacher until the very last minute so he could leave school after everybody else had all left and nobody was there waiting for him to beat the hell out of him. He would yeah. scheme how to get to school the minute the bell rang in the morning so he wouldn't get beat up but to, you know, going to school. So his whole life was spent, you know, kind of in self-preservation mode. It wasn't making friends with others. It wasn't playing on, on sports teams with others. And the few times he ventured out of his comfort zone, like joining the yearbook staff in high school or joining the track team, he got mocked and ridiculed. He took all the pictures for his high school yearbook, thought he made friends with all these nice people, and then they didn't even invite him to the, um, to the publication party. And his mother told me that that was the only time she had seen him really visibly uh, heartbroken. All the years of getting beat up, having underwear stuffed in his, in his throat and almost choking him to death, he would come home, he would go up in his room, he wouldn't say anything, and he would just retreat into his own head. But his mother said that was the only time she saw him really visibly stricken. Because I think at that point in high school, 11th or 12th grade, he felt like, you know, maybe I can make it with these people by using my artistic abilities. And, you know, that backfired on him. Yeah. So, I mean, there's reason to have some empathy for him. You know, it's, I, I can't, I don't like, I don't like to throw that word evil around too much mm. because I, I think he was made. I think he somehow got created. I don't think he was born born bad. I don't think he was born bad. I think evil people are maybe kind of born bad. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He doesn't feel like an evil person. He feels like a damaged, you know, incomplete person. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's pretty awful. And one other thing he said that, that seemed truthful to me, and this was actually what intrigued me the most when I saw this on a TV interview when he'd been in jail for about two years. And this is what made me want to write to him more than anything. This interested me more than the fact that he killed all these people was um, Geraldo Rivera asked him if he felt bad about all the women that he killed. And he said, no, which is very unusual. Usually these guys say, I wish I could turn back the clock. I wish I could, you know, you know, I could die and they could be, you know, brought back to earth. But he says, no, I don't feel bad. I want to, but I can't. And I don't know why, but I want to feel bad. And that's what really made me pique my interest more than anything. And I think the next day I penned a letter to him yeah. and I didn't hear from him for a few months, but then I penned another one and he responded. Yeah. Well, I, I, think still, I still think there has to be, some type of genetic component to this. I think, yeah, he became this, but I think he had it in his genes somehow. And I don't know who his adoptive parents were. I mean, his biological parents were, but I'm sure they were not, uh, they had some kind of genetic defect that he became this serial killer. Well, I mean, he's been tested. He was tested over and over. He had, you know, three or four days of PET scans. I think it was Cornell University. Um, they haven't, they weren't able to find any frontal lobe damage. Um, they haven't found anything yet. Yeah. So. yeah. Well, his parents, his biological parents were two college students. Uh, his father was an army vet who 
who met a girl and he was in college, met a girl, right. and got pregnant, and they that was that. They didn't get married. And I wonder to this day, I guess they know what happened to their son. Well, I uh, the, the, he was adopted from that wise, that Jewish um, uh, adoption agency that was involved in that controversy with the three identical strangers. That, now, uh, that movie that was made. Okay, and they owned a restaurant in the city for a while. Yeah. yeah but, we brothers. But, yeah. That, but that, yeah, uh, yeah. that adoption agency was up to a lot of uh, chicanery, uh, keeping secrets from birth parents and stuff. I mean, from adoptive parents. So maybe there was some stuff that they did not tell the adoptive parents. Yeah, that's interesting. That was a that wise agency was very very shady. There were a lot of interesting things going on there. And and just one other thing that makes Joel a lot different from other serial killers, there was no pattern um, of uh, there was no like gateway actions as a kid. He didn't torture animals. He didn't pull the wings off of insects. He didn't commit vandalism or arson or things like that. He would, And he also had a very good relationship with his mother who had a master's degree, which was very unusual for a woman in that era. And the mother had very esoteric interests, such as photography and gardening, that Joel shared with her. So he had a very nice, bountiful relationship, rewarding and fulfilling relationship with his mother um, even though he had problems with his father, um, there was really no s signals that he would dislike women. Yeah. People want to believe that serial killers are smart. They're cunning. Uh, their psychological profile is one of uh, a tortured soul and all those things. But lots of times, it, it, well, back in this era, people just got away with things because maybe of the ineptitude of law enforcement or maybe I shouldn't say ineptitude, just they didn't have the tools and they were overwhelmed right. with work, you know? Yeah. Well, guys, we're Joel, Joel doesn't, he doesn't fit the pattern of, um, no, you can't, yeah. all the pegs don't go into the hole. Definitely yeah. not. Guys, we're at an hour and 10 minutes, so I think we should uh, starting moving into our closing ceremonies. And at this point, I always allow you guys to talk uh, Bob, you got anything you want to plug right now? I know you've written four books. You need patients to lay on your couch that you can psychoanalyze. You want to say you, you want to, I need you want to plug anything? I want to plug a movie uh, called Mod Haven Cash for Keys. I'm the writer, co-writer, and co-producer. Um, it stars an actor by the name of Robert Davi. Everybody knows his face. You probably don't know his name, but you'll know, know his face. It's going to be on all streaming outlets on July 6th. We just got a distributor. It was filmed in the Mott Haven section of the South Bronx in 2017. It's a really nifty, sweet little um, New York-centric movie. So Mott Haven Cash for Keys, July 6th, on uh, all your streaming devices. Bob, you are a man of many talents. You wear many hats, my God. Case you got, goes wrong, you want to have backup, man. You're not. You're never going to go hungry. <laughs> we only go through once. That's right. Got to make Mr. the most. Mr. Robert Butcher, one of my favorites of all time of, in of the law enforcement world. What are you doing these days? Let our uh, audience know. 
Uh, I'm writing a book, My Adventures in Forensics and Death Investigation, uh, 20 years, 23 years at the medical examiner's office. And it's hard work. Jesus, I had no idea. It was easier doing those cases than it is writing about them. One chapter at a time. That's it. One chapter at a time. So I'm hoping it'll be out. It'll it'll be a while. It'll be a year. But um, you're you're doing some acting too, right? Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Barbara's talking to me. Go ahead, Barbara. Yeah, I've done a few little things. Uh, I had that pilot of mob mentality that was, you know, I thought it was going to be my big break, but COVID killed that. So, uh, yeah, we'll see what's next. Is that DOA or you think they may revive it? Uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't heard anything from the producer since COVID hit. I mean, what happened is she went out to L.A., met with a couple of producers who were interested, and then the country shut down that night. That's what happened to our podcast. We were thought we were going to be a national hit. Then all of a sudden COVID hit. And, uh, we discovered StreamYard, <laughs> yeah. which is a great thing. So, listen, I want to thank both of you guys. I think this this was fascinating. And, uh, thank you. I felt like we somehow underutilized Barbara a little bit. I think she wanted to get into the blood and the guts and the, and the anthropological analysis, but uh, I didn't really have any bones to recover or any teeth that she could take a look at. But uh, we, I just know, Barbara, it's great to be your friend. You've been on the show numerous times, and I hope I can reach out to you again. And Absolutely. I know Duty, Duty Ron is in the chat, and he's salivating right now to get you back on his show because I think you and I set a record. 54,000 people watched our episode with Duty Ron. Wow. I wish I had that following. I'm working. I'm working hard. And You're Bob doing a great Ryan, job, Bill. I think I may even learn how to spell your name. I've been talking to you so long now. But uh, I want to thank both of you guys for being on the show. I think this was fantastic. And uh, I guess we should say goodnight to everyone. Right. Thank, thank you. you. Good night, you guys. Good night, Good night everyone. Keep up the great work, Bill. Thanks, man. I appreciate it.